Well, what a celebration that we have been enjoying this morning. Amen? Sweet to be here. Now, why isn't everybody here? Do you ever sit in church and think, why isn't everybody here? What about people who, who they don't understand? They just don't get it. It's sad. It's interesting. If you study your Bible carefully, you will notice that the Bible makes a lot of sense of the world. I want to show you three things the Bible says today that they make a lot of sense. My goodness, if you didn't even believe the Bible was true, if you didn't believe that, that the Bible was God's infallible word like the Bible teaches and like we believe that it is, you would still have to admit this is the Bible teaches these things and it is true. I want to show you what these three things are. Three Bible truths. Let me show them to you. There is this, the curse. In other words, there's something drastically wrong with the world. Now, on a sunny morning like Easter, when everybody's had a good breakfast and we've just been enjoying this heavenly music, it's easy for us to kind of forget that we live in a really messed up world. But we do. And the Bible says that. I got a letter from uh, a camp director, uh, my friend Paul, uh, last 2009, September of 2009. We'd been there and he wrote me this little letter. I want to read it to you. And it gives you just a little bit of the, the, the pain and the, and the angst and the hurt of living in a world that we call, he's going to call it a fallen world. It's referenced back to the garden when Adam and Eve sinned and there was just a cave in, in the world and the sin cursed the earth and was passed on. He references that in this letter. Listen to this letter because it's a letter about a very, very sad thing. But you'd hear it so that we understand the significance of the resurrection. Ken, you're a dear brother. Yesterday, Jeremy and I drove to Buckley, south of Traverse City, for the funeral of a 19-month-old baby boy. The old church building wasn't hard to find. It sits one block off the town's main intersection, and it looks like it's hosted generations of funerals. The place was packed. I stood against the wall during the 45-minute service. I didn't know the family well, but they had just returned from our married couple's retreat on Sunday. They went to a ball game together before putting the kids to bed. And then on Monday morning, they found their youngest of four in the crib dead. Apparently, he had vomited and aspirated the vomit into his lungs. They dressed him in his pajamas for the burial. One of their bedtime prayers was, Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. May angels watch me through the night and and keep me safe till morning light. The pastor said in the funeral that he awoke in a new and a glorious light. Their pastor did quite well. He was warm and he showed his own grief and he didn't commit clergy malpractice. He he pointed them to Jesus. He he reminded them of the renewed heavens and the renewed earth where only righteousness dwells. He didn't speak of sin lightly. There's nothing good about the curse, Paul writes. Nothing good about the fall. And babies die because of the fall, not because of creation. The mom gave a testimony her quiet voice clear as she pleaded with the people to love their children every day and to trust Christ for eternity. Have you ever come face to face with a sorrow so deep or just an ugliness, something just so sinful and, and so depraved and, and so ugly that it, that it kind of knocks your breath out? If you pay attention to this world, that can happen to you every day. And it's because of this that the Bible says. It's because of the curse that's on the world. Let me read to you from Genesis chapter 3, the first book in the Bible, the, the opening story in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, 
and, and, and this is obviously the fall of man. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field. This follows immediately after the first kind of marriage in the Bible. Now the serpent comes along. Satan, he comes along defiling uh, the garden. And then, uh, you know the story. Ab and Eve both fall into sin. They both kind of leap into sin. They, they do wrong. And as a result of that, there's a curse on the whole earth. That's what the Bible says. And here's, here's what it says. Uh, the Lord God said to the woman in verse 13, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, you are cursed. More than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field on your belly you shall go. And you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and conception and pain. You'll bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And then, and then to Adam he says... Because you've heeded the voice of your wife and eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. With thorns and thistles it will bring forth to you. And you will eat the herb of the field and the sweat of your face. You will eat the bread and then return to the ground. For out of you it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. He says to the serpent, you're cursed. He says to the woman, you're cursed. He says to Adam, you're cursed. He says to Adam, the earth is cursed. Now, that's the answer, really. This is the thing that you can see in the Bible. Why is the earth so messed up? Why is the world so messed up? Why do people do such messed up things? Why the depravity in the world? Why the sexual abuse in the world? Why death? Why disease? Why all these ugly, terrible things? Why, why do we have people wiped out with, with a tempest or with a tsunami? It's all because of sin. It's because of the curse. It's what it says in the book of Romans in, ch- in chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, uh, it's, it's, it's a beautiful passage, but it describes the, the problem. The, or verse 20, the creation, verse 20, this is Romans eight twenty. the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. The, at verse 22 says, the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. I've not been through birth pangs, but I've seen them up close. They don't look good. God says the earth is under a curse, and it's like the earth is continually going through the pain of childbirth. Now, so if you read your Bible, you know that the Bible teaches that that the Bible explains what we all kind of intuitively know. There's something wrong in the world. There's something wrong in our country. There's something wrong in our family. There's something wrong in each of us, even our own guilt and our shame, our past sin and remorse or things that we've done. It's all a part of that. So we all feel the curse. We all experience the curse. This is what, this is just the Bible truth. Now keep this in mind because I'm driving towards something. Keep in mind the one thing that we all experience and know is that there's something messed up in the world, that the earth isn't the way it's really supposed to be. And the Bible describes that all throughout the Bible, in some of the few passages that I've already told you this morning, it describes it as a curse. Now, there's something else that maybe not, maybe not, maybe isn't quite so obvious, but I would think that any of you would think with me on this, you'll agree that there is, along with the curse on the earth, there's this universal longing for that curse to be lifted. There's a universal longing for that curse to be lifted. I think that's true with every man, every woman, everyone has within them just a sense and a feeling. Is there any way? out of this weight of this curse. 
Now, this kind of manifests itself in a lot of different ways, I think. You see it a lot. If you read books or you watch movies, you see it in, in literature all throughout time, that people are always kind of looking forward to something better happening. You're in kindergarten and you think, when I get to first grade, then I will have it put together. And then, you know, when you finally you think that's, you know, first grade is, is cool and everything, you get a nap, you get milk, but it's not that big of a deal. And, then, and so you think to yourself, what I really need to do is just simply graduate from high school. Because then, that's, we graduate from high school, you know, and then, of course, you graduate from high school, you think, well, I, you know, I'm not really feeling the happiness that I'd hope to get out of my high school graduation, so probably going to need a college degree, or maybe get married, or get a really good job with benefits and all of that. And you, but you get, you, how many of you ever got something, and when you got it, you said, this is absolutely it, I am completely and totally and fully satisfied now, not for very long, not even, not even marriage, not even marriage as wonderful as marriage is. Not even marriage. And this is what, this is the common thing that we all feel. We have this longing for the, the problems of sin, the curse to be lifted, the desire. And there are times, and the way I am is uh, at Christmas and Easter, you know, if I, if I go out, and I was out yesterday and, and um, shopping just a little bit, that's a part of the curse too, shopping. The very idea is a part of the fall. And unless, of course, it's at the uh, Apple store, as I mentioned last week. That's not. That's, 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 a go, that's okay. And I'm out shopping and, and having a good time. And, and the gal says to me, have a blessed Easter. There was that little wordless exchange. There must be a little spark of faith in that girl's heart. Somebody else, have a good Easter. Blessed Easter, Christmas time too. Now, hey, we know that Christmas and Easter, if you do a little reading, you know that Christmas and Easter, the way we do them, are all kind of laced with Christian and pagan things. We understand that. We understand that. And yet, do you ever notice that? Why is it that so many people long... For Christmas story to be true, for Easter story to be true, or maybe they're just like into saving the earth, and that's like religion to them. And they're serious; they love the earth, and they don't want the earth messed up. Or maybe they've got whole shelves of books about how to live to be a hundred. They just don't want to get old, and and they don't want their body parts to stop working. Now, why is that? It's because of this universal human longing for the curse to be over. Would you agree that we all feel that? Do we all feel the curse? Yes. Does the Bible explain that? Yes. Do we all have a universal longing for the curse to be over? In other words, there's a garden at the beginning of the Bible, and then the garden gets all messed up. And then you've got all this work and this toil and this labor and this sweat. And you think, is, do we ever get to go back to the garden the way God originally made it, where it was beautiful and it didn't have the sin curse on it? And things are sweet and babies don't die and people don't do perverse things and people aren't inhumane toward one another and people don't damage the earth and all the kinds of things that are happening. You have this universal longing. Wouldn't you agree that's true? Now, there's a third thing I want you to see. Before I do, let me give you a little quote from a Christian writer who who probably put this as beautifully as I've ever read it in a non-biblical writing. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. This is kind of like a bit of philosophical writing, but stay with me. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. In other words, God puts desires in people because he intends someday to fulfill those desires. Same as this longing I'm talking about. He goes on and says, a baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. 
A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. People have sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. I find in myself, if I find, he says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. He says, I've got desires that I've never had really fully satisfied in this world. That might be evidence that I was really made for a better world, another world, an uncursed, unbroken, unfallen, back to the garden world. That's what he's saying. And he says, back to the quote, I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, it does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but earthly pleasures were only meant to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. And so you see, if we live in a sin-cursed earth, and I think we all agree that's the way the Bible describes it, I think we all have experienced the curse that's on the earth and it's on ourselves. And we have this universal longing to live in a world that has the curse lifted. It may very well be that God has allowed us to have that pain of the unlifted curse so that we long for things to be right. That's the third thing that the Bible teaches, and it's very clear in the Bible. The Bible teaches in many places. I just have one passage that's written here, but we could go to lots and lots of passages to show you this, that there's a promise of restoration. So just look at these three things. Think about them for a minute. You have in the Bible an explanation of all the bad stuff in the world. It's sin. It's the curse that comes because of sin. You have in the Bible a description of universal human longing. Over and over, people are writing about Camelot. or That's not in the Bible. Or they're writing about, you know, what happens when we get just the perfect president. He's going to make everything right. Or if your team, whatever your team is, wins a World Series or, or whatever that is, they, they, they talk about this longing for something more. Maybe if I had a nicer house, you know. And then this promise of restoration, the Scriptures. Listen to what the Scriptures say here. In Second Peter, I, I can't describe all of this. As we preach through the Bible in our church, one of the things that we do is we go like verse by verse through the Bible every Sunday. And one of the things that we do is we spend more time actually explaining some of these great mysteries of the Bible. So we have actually the Sunday morning service, a Sunday night service, and that's never enough time. We have a Sunday school hour. We have Wednesday night. It's never enough time to explain the beautiful things that are revealed in the Bible, like how do you make sense of all of this? But on a day like this that we're celebrating, we can just read it, and we can just say, man, I don't understand all that, but I'm enjoying it. Now listen, this is a passage like that, because it's got all kinds of future apocalyptic things in it. But you can get the gist of it when I read it to you. It's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. By the way, when you came, did you read the sign outside of our church? How many of you have read the sign, a big sign over there that says, Judgment Day is May 21st. Raise your hand if you saw the sign. You got a sign. You saw a sign. It's just a regular sign, though. That's not a sign from the Lord. I'm pretty sure because some things got to happen before Judgment Day. Now, if the sign had said Rapture is going to be May 21st, I'm going, could be. But if it says Judgment Day is May 21st, I'm like, not quite. 
And we're going to talk about that in a few weeks on a Sunday evening, first Sunday night in May. We have a communion service, and we will talk about that sign and, and why the folks put that there and what they're thinking, and not to attack them or anything, because we do have one thing in common. We are longing for Jesus Christ to actually come back. So we're not going to mock people. You shouldn't be setting dates, the Scriptures say. We're not going to mock them for that, but we do want to talk about that. Now, so this verse, though, is talking about this judgment and what's going to happen ultimately in the earth. These passages really kind of are going to aim toward what's going to happen ultimately in the earth after a number of different things the Bible describes transpire. In the very, very end, this is what it's going to be like. And I will give you a little hint. The curse is going to get burned out of the earth. It's going to go away. That would have been a great clapping spot right there, but I got to coach you on this thing. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. So think about the earth with no curse. That'd be good. Now, listen to what it says. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and, and in godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, we look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, if we go to back to Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, there's something that's from verses 18 on. Verse 18 on in Romans chapter 8. It's an awesome passage there from Romans 8, 18 to the end. It's all good, but this is just especially good. And if you read this, what you're going to see in Romans chapter 8 is it says, because of the curse that's on the world, the whole world is like on tiptoes, eagerly waiting for this time when the curse is going to get lifted someday. Three times, there's a special Greek term that, that means eagerly waiting. Eagerly waiting. Waiting with longing and anticipation. And this is the time that it's ultimately referring to when the sin curse is lifted from the world. Pretty exciting stuff. We have this promise there in the Bible. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, in the regeneration, this is a reference to that ultimate time, and we call the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal state, sometimes we call that, in the very, very end of the very end. Assuredly, I say to you, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on thrones, judging 12 tribes of Israel. In Acts 3, And verse 21, you want to read the whole context of this, but there's a phrase that just leaps out. And here's what it says. Whom in heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things. Get it? This is all throughout the Bible. There are little hints like this. There's going to be a regeneration, a resurrection of the earth, a regeneration, a restoration of all things. That is why people who might not know Jesus yet, and they're kind of messed up in the head in terms of their theology about Jesus, they have in them this longing for people not to mess up the earth. That's the God-given thing. Did you know that? That's a God-given thing because God gave us this earth. God loves this earth, and he's going to restore this earth. It's like we're going from a garden to the fallen creation, to a restored garden in the end. It's like the Bible begins in a garden and it ends in the garden. It begins really God on earth and it ends with heaven on earth. A lot of people don't think that. They think, I know what heaven's like. You get a, Everybody gets issued one harp. Everybody gets issued white clothing. And then you get to float around up in the sky. And if you don't like harp music... I guess it's just going to be really boring. Well, that's not what the Bible says. I read, a, I read an awesome book on heaven. 
uh, not long ago. And let me give you a quote from it. Randy Alcorn's book on heaven, good, good book on heaven. Here's what he said. He says, you just sanctified imagination when you think about heaven. He said, to understand heaven, you just need the help of the Holy Spirit and you need your sanctified, biblically informed imagination. Randy Alcorn goes on and says, um, look out the window, take a walk, talk with your friend, use your God-given skills to paint or draw or build a shed or write a book. Imagine it, all of it in its original condition, the world in its original condition before its fall. The happy dog with the wagging tail, not the snarling beast beaten and starved. The flowers unwilted, the grass undying, the blue sky without pollution. People smiling and joyful, not angry, depressed and empty. And if you're not in a particularly beautiful place, close your eyes and envision the most beautiful place you've ever been, complete with palm trees, Michigan people say, pines and birches, raging rivers, jagged mountains, rushing waterfalls, pure snowdrifts. Think of friends and family members that who love Jesus and, and you're with them now. Picture them with you walking together in this beautiful place. All of you have powerful bodies stronger than an Olympic decathlete. I like that part. That's kind of cool. Stronger than an Olympic decathlete. You'll be able to all play trumpets in heaven. Amen? Everybody. Nobody misses the first line of the song in heaven. Yeah, uh, you're laughing, you're playing, you're talking, you're reminiscing. You reach up to a, a tree, you pick an apple or an orange or a fruit like you've never seen before. You take a bite. It's so sweet and it's startling. You never tasted anything so good. And now you see someone coming towards you. It's Jesus smiling. You fall on your knees. You worship him. He pulls you up and embraces you. At last, you're with the person that you were made for in the place where you were made to be. I like this. This is sanctified imagination he's using. What's that smell? Well, it's food, of course. (laughs) A feast, a party. And you're invited. There are places to explore. There are people to meet. But you've got all eternity and you're just getting started. This is heaven. This is the eternal state. This is heaven and earth come together in the end, in the very end of the very end. Now listen, if you could just keep those images fresh in your mind, if you could just believe, you would never be discouraged. You would never yield to sin, would you? If you could just keep those images of that restored earth and you in it, a blood-bought child of God in heaven and on earth, when heaven and earth come together, In the eternal state, you would never sin. You would never be depressed. You would never be discouraged. If you could just keep that fresh in your spirit and your heart. It's a little bit, it's a little bit tantalizing. It's kind of like when you were a kid and your parents took you on vacation and they talked all, you know, you're in school and it's just going on forever. And your parents said, we get out of school. We're going to go on vacation. We're going to go to the Grand Canyon. It's going to be amazing. We're going to eat amazing things. We're going to stay up late. We're going to look at the stars at night. We're going to watch the moon rise. We're going to listen to animal sounds at night. It's going to be wonderful. And your dad goes out in the van and he rigs up a television so that you can watch television on the way out there. Cause it's going to be so many hours and he gets special things to eat and he puts them in there so he can pass them out a little bit at a time to make the time go by. And then you all get in the van, right? And you get the van started and you get started and, and you're driving out. You're about 10 miles out of town and your little brother says, are we there yet? And your parent, your dad rolls his eyes. He's like, no, we're not even close to being there yet. You get that feeling with this? It's like, God, when are we going to be there? When is that going to happen? When are you going to lift the sin curse from this earth? And God, can I just say, sometimes I doubt it. 
Can I just say sometimes I just lose my hope? Can I just say sometimes I forget? Can I just say, God, sometimes I sin as if there is no heaven and as if there is no hell. So now what's the answer to that question, that, that, that the troubling problem that we all have, the are we there yet problem? What's the answer? Now this is where I want to introduce a little Easter, a little Resurrection Sunday, if you will. Take your Bibles now and look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'm within two or three hours of quitting, so just relax. I'm almost there, you know. Your ham's going to be fine. I'm kidding. It's, it's not going to be long. Not going to be long. But, uh, but look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, because this I, I said all of that to take you to this. I want to talk about, are we there yet, from 1 Corinthians 15. And I want you to notice something. This is what I want you to have embedded in your heart. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, you have Paul doing this long uh, teaching on the resurrection and the fact that you're going to have, that we're going to be raised to life again someday. Some people will be raised to be rewarded with the Lord and some will be raised for judgment, but we're all going to be raised, the Bible says. Paul says that people are like, I doubt that. I doubt that. Some of you have said, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in a resurrection. Which is, there's actually still people that say they're Christians and don't believe in a resurrection. Like, you serious? You believe in a virgin birth, you don't believe in a resurrection as well. Is this too hard for you? What's going on here? You believe that God created the world, but he couldn't raise Jesus from the dead? That's just messed up. You know, I don't get that. I don't get that. It's like, well, just read the paper on Sunday and stay home. You know, you don't, you know, just like quit the whole business. What in the world? Here Paul is saying, hey, gee, if there's no resurrection from the dead, he says, then Jesus is still dead and we're all toast is what he says it's it, if jesus is so if jesus is alive everything is kind of okay but if jesus isn't alive we're wasting our time that's exactly it's really kind of what he he says it a lot better than i just did but that's basically what he's saying our life is in vain our faith is in vain our preaching is in vain it's all emptiness it's stupidity it's but notice these three things and this is beautiful three things jesus is raised and he's called the first fruits look at verse 20 now Christ is, this is 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty. Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who slept. This is interesting that Jewish people would understand Jesus, the, 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 the things that happen in Jesus' life, significant things that happen in Jesus' life often happen on Jewish feast days. They have like symbolic significance. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead on the feast day, first fruits. And the idea there in the first fruits is the early harvest, the barley harvest, the people would get together and they would give a gift on this feast of first fruits of the Lord, like the barley. They would gather it together and it was like a wave offering to give it up to the Lord. And so they would take this offering and say, I want to take the best part of this that you've given me, God, because you're so good and because you poured bounty into my life all the time. I'm going to bring it to the temple and I'm going to take it up before you and I'm going to say thank you. This is just the, a little bit of what's going to happen. Now there's going to be a full harvest later, but this is the first fruits. This is the best part. The Bible says Jesus is the first fruits of those who will rise from the dead. That means if he came back from the, from the dead and there's going to be others, many others, a harvest of others that are going to come back from the dead. So Christ in verse 23 and verse 1 is the first, uh, first part of verse 23. Each 
one in his own order, verse 23, Christ the firstfruits. But that's not all. Look, verse 23, the second part says, afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. I like this. You're going to see three things here. You're going to see, number one, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead as the firstfruits. In other words, when we, when our hearts and our spirits long, are we there yet? This is what God sovereignly arranged to encourage us. When you are just thinking that your life is interminably under the curse of sin and guilt and shame and pain and all of that, what are you supposed to do? Remember that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead as the first fruits, and there you will rejoice, and there you will work, and there you will believe, because that's why God, one of the many reasons why God gave his son, the Lord Jesus, and Jesus rose from the dead, was so that we would know that one day the one who raised Jesus from the dead would raise us from the dead too at his coming. But that is not all. That's where this gets really exciting because everything we were talking about, those three things that were true are tucked into this passage. Notice the next thing that the scriptures say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22 says, As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming, I hope that's you, those who are Christ, those who belong to Christ at his coming will be raised from the dead. And then what happens? Verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father and when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. That's good stuff right there. What do you think about that? What do you think? That's worth coming to church for. Just that passage right there. It's all right there. Jesus Christ was raised first. He's the first fruits promised. There's going to be a great harvest of people coming back from the dead, including all of us who believe in Christ unto salvation. But that isn't all. Then he's going to fix what's broken in the earth and he's going to take authority over everything. And he uses this imagery of a king. Back then, the king would be up high and all the people under him would be down low. And if you had a king that messed with the king of kings, then the king of kings would take the, the lesser king and he would take he would do this public demonstration where that king would go down and he would put his foot on the neck of that king our king the lord jesus christ is the king of kings and one day the king of all the earth is going to put his foot on the neck of every king on the earth Gaddafi and everybody else now that's going to be cool don't you think the king of kings and the lord of lords is going to take us back to the garden again He's going to take us by the hand back to the garden. He's going to restore all things. It'll be a beautiful place to live. I don't know about you, but I'm going to be there. How do I know I'm going to be there? You say, that's bragging. No, it isn't. It's bragging on Jesus is what that is. It's not about me. It's, it's not our own works that save us, right? You know that. It's Jesus that saves us. We believe, and that's what. So you say, well, what should I do? If, if, if um, look at First uh, Corinthians 15.1, and you'll see some things to do here, okay? What should I do? I have three things. Two of them you're going to see here. I want, I want to tell you one other. Three things. One, you believe. If you haven't already done that. You want to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. You believe Jesus who he is, why he died, and that he was raised from the dead. And the Bible shorthand for that is 
you believe that Christ was raised from the dead. When you, when I say in my heart of hearts, I believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. That's Bible shorthand for saying, I believe that Jesus Christ is the creator of everything. I believe that Jesus Christ is the sustainer of everything. I believe that Jesus Christ never had a beginning and he will never have an end. I believe that Jesus Christ came into the sin cursed world to bear the sin curse for all of us who have the curse over our head. And I believe that Jesus died and I believe by his own power and the power of the father, he was raised to life again and he's alive today and he ascended to heaven and he's coming back. So when you say, I believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, you're saying all of that. You're saying he is who the Bible says he is. And it's when a person believes that they become a Christian. Not when they join a church or take communion or they memorize some biblical facts, but when they put their faith and their trust and their confidence in the work that Jesus Christ alone did for them to pay for their sin, that's when they become a new creature in Christ Jesus and they have a destiny in the new heaven and in the new earth to rejoice with God in fellowship with Him in when, the, when we get back to the garden again. The unspoiled garden of God. This is what the Bible teaches. Pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, most of you know, tonight we're talking about uh, our trip to the Holy Land. I'm going to show some pictures. Most of you know, a couple weeks ago, we got to go to the Holy Land. It was quite an experience. A lifetime experience. They take you to places where this could have happened and that could have happened. They take you to places where there are places where Roman soldiers actually marked in the ground. You can still see the markings from the first century where Roman soldiers played a gambling game with the robes of condemned people. Take you to the place. They say this is definitely one of those places where Roman soldiers gambled over the clothing of the people that they were about to kill. This may have been the place where Jesus was beaten. This may have been the place where Jesus was betrayed. This may have been the place where somebody carried his cross. And then there's some conjecture. Where is the place? Where is the actual place where Jesus died? Where is the actual place of the cross? And there's some controversy about that. If God wanted us to know the exact place of the cross, he would have made it abundantly clear. He did not want us to know the exact place of the cross. He wanted us to believe what happened on the cross. But we go into this one place where they say this may have been the very place a church built around it. And here's a woman just crawling on her hands and knees, her face on the ground. Is this the place where Jesus died? Where is the place where Jesus came back to life? We go around this place. It's actually kind of dark and confusing. You kind of wonder. We go around this place and then we slip away and we go to a place called Gordon's Calvary. You often see a picture of this. It looks like a skull, Golgotha, the place of the skull. So some people have thought this could have been where Jesus died because it looks like a skull. Well, the people who, who kind of have that place, you go and you visit there, and they actually have a guide who's an evangelical, born-again, Bible-preaching, gospel-preaching Christian person. And it's kind of fun. They're all that way. So you come in with your group and, and they get you set up. And now behind this guy, here's a kind of a cool place to preach the gospel. He's standing here and here's this place that we often think of as the place where Jesus may have died. Gordon's Calvary, the place of the skull right behind him. And then he gives this little talk, kind of like a guide. But then he kind of shifts and he starts talking about Jesus Christ. And you can tell this guy knows Jesus Christ. You can tell he loves him. You can tell he's met him. You can tell he's a, he's preaching the gospel in a place in the city where Jesus died. And then after that, the group says, well, now that you've seen this, now you get to line up because now we're all going to go in the garden tomb. I've seen pictures of this all my life. People were waiting in line, groups after groups after groups after groups to go in the garden tomb. 
had it all nicely organized so that it wasn't bedlam. Bilbies were with us. You know, the last time they went to, the, to Israel, when Everett went, he was not a believer in Jesus Christ. It was at the garden tomb when he went from death into life and he received Christ as his Savior. Can you imagine that? That was nicely arranged, Everett. I understand that. I understand why that happened. Because you heard the gospel there, amen? So Everett and Elaine and Lois and I happened to be in line together when it was our turn to go up into that tomb. Could have been the tomb of Jesus, one certainly like it. This is a picture that I saw all of my life. We waited our turn quietly, and then we walk up and we walk inside and look at the place there. Place much like the place where Jesus Christ, and it's empty, it's gone, nobody's there. Jesus alive. He's coming back someday with those that are his. He's going to lift the sin curse completely out of this world. He's going to end all of that. And then he's going to restore the garden. And you can be there too if you believe. That's why it says in, in 1 Corinthians 15:1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. It's what we're talking about with Everett that day. And that can be true with you. It's not like you line up a bunch of good deeds, you present them to God, and he goes, okay, you get in the club. That's not it. You go before God and you say, I'm so lost and so full of sin and the curse that I can't ever earn my way to God. And I want to trust that Jesus Christ paid enough for me to be saved. And then you pass from death into life and your whole life changes then. And that's happened to many of you. What should you do on a day like this? I think it'd be so cool. If you can't get saved at the garden tomb like Everett did, getting saved on Easter would be really close to as cool. Like today, that's what I'm talking about. Where you just simply go to God in your own words. You say, God, here I am. And I don't, I'm not a theologian, but I'm a sinner. And I need to be saved. You know, there's probably a bunch of you here today that you don't have that quite ironed out yet. You don't have that quite taken care of. So if you haven't, I want to suggest that you believe. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so those who sleep in Jesus will God bring with them, First Thessalonians says. Here's another thing to do. Rejoice. Rejoice. There's one more thing. It's like, that's what Christians, we've been doing that. I need to tell you that. It's Easter. You've been doing that. You've been singing. But let me show you what Paul said in First Corinthians 15. Here's how he put it. He, he, he kind of reaches a crescendo in this chapter. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 51. I'm going to read this to you. I'm going to say very little. And then we're going to continue our rejoicing by singing about it. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, incorruptible. And we will all be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, when this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let's stand together, and I want you to sing a song of rejoicing with me. Pastor, come and lead us. This will be an appropriate way for us to respond to this truth.